Now you want to talk about reading? Let's talk about reading. Let me tell you of the days of high adventure. The book served as a passageway to the evil worlds beyond. Ready to go, Doc? Oh, yes, yes, my dear fellow. I'll just check the gyroscopes. Hello, and welcome back to the Appendix N Book Club. This is episode 143 on Susanna Clark's Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell. I am Jeff, and joining us today is that gentleman with the thistle-down hair, Hoy. I'm always glad to be here. And we also have today the author of many published short stories and novelettes in the horror genre, and the co-host of the Innsmouth Book Club podcast and Strange Shadows, the Clark Ashton Smith podcast, Tim Mendes. Tim, welcome to the show. Ah, thanks for having me, guys. Yeah, it's a pleasure. Absolute pleasure. Tim, it's a pleasure to meet you. <laughs> Likewise, sir. Absolutely. So we're going to go ahead and start with asking you that cliche RPG podcast question, how did you get into gaming? But we're also curious how you also found your way into the world of weird fiction and speculative fiction as well. Well, they, they kind of both happened sort of similarly. Lots of wet, wet Tuesdays in <laughs> growing up, growing up in the UK. You know, when you're stuck inside. Uh, so I discovered weird fiction through, um, you know, they have them sort of like big compendiums of ghost stories. Like my grandparents had one. And I found like Algernon Blackwood's The Willows mm. through that. And that's what got me into weird fiction. From there, I discovered like Lovecraft and Smith and all these other chaps. And um, when I was at school, one of my friends, I we used to like read all this stuff together. And his brother was into D and D, so that's how we that's how we got into it. We got into it through like um, through osmosis, basically through the guy's elder brother. And we'd sort of lurk around the fringes of it for a bit, like going, "Oh, what, what are they doing?" Like peering through the door, you know, "What are they doing?" And then we then we sort of got involved, and that's sort of uh, how it how it happened, kind of thing. Yeah, nice. And if our listeners are looking for recommendations for things to check out to inspire their gaming, what would you recommend? Well, I, I have been thinking about this long and hard because I actually pulled up the Appendix N list and was looking through it. And you've got a lot of the, the, the people I would suggest on there, you know, like your, your Lovecrafts and your Blackwoods and things like that. But I was really surprised that Arthur Macken isn't listed mm, on yeah. there. When you when you consider that that um, like his whole thing about you know the little people that live in the hills and all this kind of thing, and and these sort of like subterranean kingdoms, it almost echoes like C.S. Lewis and people like that who are on the list. Um, so by extension from that, a story of a very similar vein uh, by John Buchan, uh, better known for Thirty Nine Steps, sure. uh, is a a novella called No Man's Land. And it's about, um, it's set in the Scottish Highlands and it's a sort of forgotten race that lives in the side of mountain kind of thing. And I think, I think you could do a lot of stuff with that. Um, and also reading this, I was kind of, kind of thinking about Sharp. Oh, Richard Sharp books. Yeah, sure. The Peninsula. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Because high actor. I was thinking about Sharp. Yeah, I was thinking about Sharp because uh, specifically the TV version of Sharp's Gold, which is completely different to the the novel, but and it's completely bonkers. It's about this mad cannibal cult that lives in the hills, and they've got a pile of treasure and all this kind of thing. So I think I think you could do some a nice campaign around that kind of setup. These are great recommendations. Of course, it's um, <laughs> uh, what's his name? You know, so it connects to Game of Thrones too. Uh, Sean uh, Sean Bean. 
Sean Bean. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, the, the the DM would have to do it in Sean Bean's voice, wouldn't they? Bastard. You bastard. Yeah. See, I can do it because I'm, I'm, I'm born just over the hill from where Sean Bean's <laughs> yeah. from. So I can, I can you bastard. <laughs> there you go. Nice. And uh, let's go ahead and take a look at which version of the book we are working with. When I this is my second time reading it. When I first read it, I read the the uh, first edition hardcover. But this time around, I listened to the audiobook, which is narrated by Simon Preble. And gotta say, fantastic audiobook, mm. really stunning production. Very, very, very pleased with it. And they also do all of the footnotes in the audiobook as well. And how do they do that? Oh, do they nice. do that as interjections or? Uh, yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Yeah, yeah, because yeah, I did wonder about that when I saw it on Amazon because I had to buy another copy of it because I couldn't find my original copy. You know, I'll probably mm-hmm. find it next week. <laughs> but um, I, I was like, how are they going to do all the footnotes? So now yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. Uh, so how about you, Tim? Which version are you working with? I'm working with, it's the second, it's the second edition, the, what is it, Bloomsbury? The Bloomsbury paperback basically uh, i didn't trust myself with a hardback because if you drop that on your foot you're gonna know about it aren't you <laughs> or if you're lying asleep if you're lying in bed and pausing you'll break your nose well, exactly that's it i do read in bed and this was bad enough <laughs> you know you start it's, it's almost like doing curls isn't it it's sort of weight training in, in bed yeah <laughs> Yeah, and back in the day, I used to do most of my reading on the subway, so I would be carrying around that gigantic hardback oh. on onto the subway each day. <laughs> oh man, yeah. I've also yeah. I've also got a copy of the uh, her short story collection, Ladies of Grace and Dew, yeah, which, which is the original story where which it all spun out of, isn't it? Is the uh, Ladies of Grace and Dew. Right. Because that's sort of like uh, it came out first, didn't it? So I've I've also read right. that. I don't, and, I, and I like how she alludes to it in the novel too. The, the story, yeah. Mm. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think it was it was also kind of adapted into the TV version as well, wasn't it? They did bits of it in there. So yeah. it's, it's about her uh, Arabella's brother. The the story sort of yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I've not read the Ladies of Grace to do, but I'd really like to just because I I enjoy this book so much. Mm. But um. Yeah. Hoy, what are you well, working Well, I am reading the Kindle ebook because I'm traveling this week. And also, I had the first edition hardcover back in the day, but was also intimidated by it, even though I, I knew that I wanted to read it. And so I remember that I didn't actually read the book for the first time until the miniseries came out. And then I also, the ebook was on deal roughly that same year. So it was 2015. So that's when I read the ebook. And I, I sort of alternated sometimes, but this time it was the, the ebook entirely. So, yeah. Yeah. And Tim, have you seen the miniseries? I have indeed, yeah. I actually own it, own it on DVD. We got it when it came out. And I hadn't read, the like same as Hoy, I hadn't read it. I watched the TV series first and mm. then went back, then went and read the book. Because, um, yeah, it's another one, you know, them to-be-read piles that are kind of mountainous in the corner of your room. <laughs> it was sort of sitting in the center of it, you know. <laughs> Almost like a lodestone. Right, it has, own gra- it has its own <laughs> gravitational force, right? Yeah. and hoy what do we have today for a hygaxian word of the day i think i will go with uh jason white's word which is quite good and that is hansel hansel which is a gift given for good luck at the beginning of the year to mark an acquisition or start of an enterprise in this case is summoning the uh 
power of the fairy, I guess, or the ma- or the Raven King, I should say, summoning the Raven King back to um, to northern northern England. So Hansel, yeah, nice. And before we dive on into the library, I do have a plot synopsis here. Um, what I have is. Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell is a historical fantasy novel written by Susanna Clarke set in 19th century England during the Napoleonic Wars. The story revolves around the resurgence of English magic after centuries of dormancy. In the early 1800s, magic is a theoretical pursuit as no practicing magicians exist in England. However, the reclusive Mr. Gilbert Norrell changes this by revealing his remarkable magical abilities to the world. He becomes the only magician in England, working closely with the government to aid the war against France. Norrell's magic brings him fame and influence, but he is cautious about revealing the true extent of his powers. Enter Jonathan Strange, a charismatic and impulsive young man who discovers his own innate magical abilities. Norrell reluctantly takes Strange as his apprentice, and together they work to restore magic to its former glory in England. However, their differing philosophies and approaches to magic lead to a strained relationship. As Strange delves deeper into his magical studies, he unearths forgotten secrets and ancient prophecies. He becomes obsessed with the enigmatic Raven King, a legendary magician who once ruled northern England. Strange's experiments and exploits lead him to dabble in more dangerous and unpredictable forms of magic, putting him at odds with Mr. Norrell's cautious approach. The novel takes a darker turn as Strange's magical pursuits lead him down a perilous path, culminating in a confrontation with a malevolent fairy known as the Gentleman with the Thistledown Hair. This fairy's involvement threatens not only Strange, but also those he holds dear, including his wife, Arabella. And that's where the plot synopsis wraps up. So we can head on into the library now. And Tim, what do you think of Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell? I absolutely loved it. It's one of those books that it, send, it ends up sending me down rabbit holes. Um, and it was completely wasn't what I was expecting the first time I read it. I, I was just expecting it to be a, a very sort of dry, almost. But it, it's, it, it takes that sort of, um, you know, the Pride of Prejudice kind of feel. It, it's a satire more than anything. Um, and being, being somebody who's, who grew up in the north of England, um, a lot of the stuff like with the north-south divide and all that kind of stuff and um, the allusions to the sort of class in magic, it just made me laugh um, so much. Uh, and I wasn't expecting that the first time I read it. And I think I actually enjoyed it more this second time around because I, I really dived into the footnotes. and some mm. of the, And a lot of those footnotes... Um, the sort of self-contained stories within them, like the stuff mm-hmm. about like Bloodworth and and all that kind of stuff, I, I just loved all that. And uh, you know, <laughs> it's almost a shame that, that it's weird because I don't. I'm not usually a big fan of huge books. You know, things like The Stand. Just I, I just can't make it through it. I, <laughs> I run out of steam. Yeah. But, but um, but it's almost a shame this isn't even longer with more of these weird little footnotes because some of the stuff in it it's just so bonkers and out there that I was just like oh that's that's great <laughs> you know I, I think it's uh you hit on something that I was really actually going to ask you about which was how did that strike you the difference between the you know we in the United States are not necessarily aware of all the regional differences in England and the signifiers of the regional differences and that. How successful was she at depl- uh, uh, depicting those? And it sounds like she was quite successful for for, for you. Yeah, yeah. 
Oh, absolutely. Yeah, because it's like growing up, right? Um, well, basically, if, just to sort of simplify it, uh, people in the North view Southerners as soft. Uh, specifically, we call them shandy drinkers. <laughs> You know, they can't, they can't handle a proper beer, you know. They, they all drink shandy and lager and lime and all this kind of thing, right? But, but it goes deeper than that because you even have a sort of up north, you even have an east-west divide. Like I'm from the northwest, right? So I'm I'm from so I'm from um, I'm actually from Cheshire, just under Manchester. But then and right down the centre, there's basically a spine called the Pennines, which separates the west from the east. So people from Yorkshire are from the wrong side of the Pennines. <laughs> it's, Amazing. it's really strange. It's really tribal. It's almost like it's almost like uh, you know, like uh, how would I explain it? Well, you guys, you have like your college football and that kind of thing, right? <laughs> and you have that that sort of tribal instinct. We have the same thing, but it, it's all just based on where you come from. Uh, and do you eat? Uh, do you call them scones or scones? Uh, <laughs> you know, ridiculousness like this. You know what I mean? It's, uh, but I think she nailed it. She, she absolutely nailed it because she drilled down into to just basically how ridiculous it all is at the heart of it. You know. <laughs> I think it's interesting how the UK is roughly the size of Michigan. Yeah. So I think I think Americans have a tendency to think like, oh yeah, the UK, like they're not that big. So there's just kind of this presumption of a shared culture oh, that just yeah. goes across all of the UK. And it's just not true. The UK is so incredibly varied yeah. and in a way that I think is hard for a lot of Americans to really fully comprehend. Yeah, it's really strange because it's it's like um, the sort of distance where you guys would have between like two towns. Um, you know, <laughs> that's like our entire country sort of thing. <laughs> but, but in that space, you've got like about eight different regional dialects. Yeah, You know, it's like um, like I have a Mancunian accent. And it's so different to say um, Ramsey Campbell, who is from Liverpool, which is only it's only it's in the same county, right? <laughs> but mm-hmm. but our accents are so different, you know. Or I just I, I'm a huge PJ Harvey fan, and mm. her new newest album just came out, and it's completely in the Dorset dialect. Nice. And I did not realize that the Dorset dialect was so different from English that's recognizable to me. Oh, yeah that like I, it, it, there's like, there's basically a thesaurus that comes with the, with the lyric sheet so that you can kind of understand what it is. She's still singing about. Wow. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the West country. Yeah. I mean, it, like if you go even deeper into it, I mean, it gets sort of thicker the further you go, it's like Dorset and then you've got Devon and Somerset. But once you get to Cornwall, it's like I I grew up here, right? And even I I struggle <laughs> to, to understand some of it, right. some of it, you know, because it, it is just right. completely different. And Jeff, you do ever get a chance yeah. to read the short storybook, the second story, uh, Licorice Hill? It's written completely in dialect. Mm. Um, it's comprehensible, yeah. but it's written completely in dialect. Oh. It's marvelous. It's and um, yeah, yeah. Very, very cool. Right. And going back to the footnotes, what I love about this book is you don't have to read the footnotes if you don't want to. If you just kind of want to breeze through this book, you'll still get the full story without touching the footnotes at all. Yeah. But the footnotes just add so much depth to this to the world building and to the story. It's it really is just it's a beautiful addition to the book. Yeah, definitely. It's um, I love that. I love the the whole idea of it, and I, w- I wish more authors would do it, because sometimes when it's all packed into the main text, it gets quite it gets quite 
you know, a bit much sometimes. Like some of these epic fantasy novels, it, yeah, is it is a bit bit. It's like sensory overload. But, but the yeah. fact yeah, that it's, yeah. yeah, exactly. But the fact that it's in a footnote, you can. Mm-hmm. It's kind of compartmentalized to a degree. So, like you say, if you don't want a, it's like, oh, I'm not really interested in that bit. <laughs> you know, you don't have to read it to know what's going right. on. But if you do, yeah. you'll be rewarded by this sort of really rich lore. And it's also a way of communicating to the reader what what is essential to understanding the story mm-hmm. and what is what's what's just adding additional flavor. Yeah. Where if all of that is in the text, sometimes it's hard as the reader to really kind of be able to parse out like what is essential to the story and what's just interesting mm-hmm. information. And I think um you hit on something there, um, Tim, that there's a tendency, especially in sort of doorstop or fiction to do info dumps, both within dialogue or yes. as internal monologues, um, which is necessary yes. to understand the world, but actually doesn't illuminate character. Um, whereas this book is so incredibly successful to by using character to depict, depict the world. Like, you know, Walter, yeah. uh, Mrs. Pohl's rage at being this, you know, sidelined, you know, woman, ancillary woman, right? Or Stephen Black's reserve by his role and his race, yeah. uh, but it illuminates the world. In, in so many ways, or or Jonathan Strange's carelessness because he's a member of the upper class, you know, that, you know. Yeah. Um, and so I think that's so brilliantly successful there um, that, that it's almost the inverse of how people do world building in a lot of doorstopper fantasy novels now. Um, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I totally agree. Um, it's, and I think it is, like you say, it, it lets the character shine, doesn't it, by having that sort of all separated out. It's like for me, like like the star of the show for me is Vinculus. Mm-hmm. I, I I love that, <laughs> love that chap. Right? He's fantastic, yeah. <laughs> and, and I think if if it was explaining all his backstory as it went, it wouldn't be as immediate. Just how entertaining this guy yeah. is. <laughs> so, for somebody listening who hasn't read the book, like, what is it about Vinculus that you love so much? Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna explain um, uh, in a in a random way here because it, it's his fecklessness and the fact that he's just such a character. It, it's like you meet these guys; they're usually down the pub, and they've usually had about seven ciders too many, and they tell you these tall tales, you know, and you don't know where some of it. There is a kernel of truth in there, but. But, but it's buried under all this nonsense as well. <laughs> but but it's like so when you dive into his backstory, it's like a concept that I really like in this. That it just makes me smile is the concept of book murder. <laughs> yeah. that, that his dad was a hand for, right? <laughs> right. Because he, he lost a bet and ate a book of magic. <laughs> And he was then executed for murdering a book. <laughs> and I, I just love it. But uh, the other thing with Vinculus that I couldn't get out of my head this second time writing it is a friend of mine, um, Joel Hayes from the band Byronic Sex and Exile. He recently posted up his theory that Vinculus was inspired by Arthur Brown. You know, Crazy World of Arthur Brown, the god of hellfire? Now, if you've had, you know, uh, I bring you fire, the, the old 60s tune. But if you've ever seen any interviews with him, it's spot on. I can totally see it. Since you mentioned, yeah, it's it's amazing because Susanna Clark cr- creates this very, I uh, guess, sort of Oxbridge viewpoint. At, but mm-hmm. she's satirizing that. And that and, and she's yeah. able to do the high to low, both regionally and the different st- social strata. 
Oh, well, he's scared. Doesn't think he was just like literally found in a ditch under a bush when he's when he goes. To- <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. yeah, yeah. It's brilliant. And every character has so much depth and humanity. Even even when a lot, even the ones that are played at as a joke are still just so believable and so real. Uh, like in our patron book club before this, we were talking about uh, Mrs. Bullworth. The woman who's hired, uh, who thinks she's hired Jonathan Strange to do all these horrible curses on all of those people who have wronged her. And clearly this is like a comedic bit, but even the way that like she's presented in this story, like you understand who she is and why she is the way she is. The the, the characters are always so, um, so alive mm-hmm. in this, yeah. in this book. Yeah, I, I, again, it's like what Hoy says about the, the social strata in there. It, it was it was really sort of skewering a lot of because it uses a lot of the stereotypes, but yeah. it uses them in an incredibly inventive way. It's not just like Strange is you know he's the sort of a land wealthy landowner. He's just a fop, you know. He has depth as well. Um, and I, again, I think it comes from the sort of because there's obviously an, a Jane Austen influence mm-hmm. in it. There has sure. to be of sort of the pride of prejudice, you know, the sort of comedy of morals and all that kind of thing. Uh, and I thing is, I'm a big fan of pride of prejudice because of, of that. Again, it's a satire on, on all that thing. And the, the way she uses Susan Clark uses magic to get a point in the cross. it's like, yeah, you have cl- classes within classes. Cause you even have classes of magicians <laughs> of like these guys. Oh yeah. Then they're, they're not learning, right. you know, they're, and when the new magicians know. emerge, like, um, what's his name? The Tom yeah. maybe the dancing master who also is Jewish. Right. It's like, <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah. yeah. And I don't know if she's directly inspired by or if they're drawing upon the same inspirations, but I also was experiencing a lot of um, Mervyn Peak in this oh, as yeah. well. Oh, I didn't and, think of that. Yeah. And in one of the w- one part that I'm uh, that I just absolutely adored in this book was, um, and this is something I chatted about in the Patron Book Club, but um, Jonathan Strange's father's manservant. That whole scene with that guy who like comes into the estate. And has all of this entitlement and believes he's better than all of the other servants and is ready to take his rightful place at the side of Mr. Strange as the man who's responsible for all of all of the things that are required to like make him get through the day. He's going to be that guy for him. And immediately, like as as a reader, we're just kind of rolling our eyes at this character. We know that this character sucks and that he's probably going to get his comeuppance in some way. And. And it's, and and he does get his comeuppance, but it's it's the way in which Mister the way in which Jonathan Strange's father responds to it is so over the top and so vicious and so cruel <laughs> mm. that like we end up actually kind of empathizing with this like this this entitled manservant, and then also in the end, Mister Strange is that and ends up being the one who ends up dying from the from the punishments that he's um, putting on this guy. So like it all kind of like ends up being turned on its head on top of it. And then even afterwards, though, like the manservant is still talking about all the things that happened as though he's the great hero of the story. So he hasn't learned anything from it. He's still the same jackass he was before. But like we still like have this kind of interesting empathy for this character. And it just it felt very Titus grown to me. It also had a bit of Kugel to it. That was just I don't know. It brought a big smile to my face. 
Yeah, it, 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 it's the playfulness, isn't it? It's um, yeah, and and I think I think a lot of it why it works so well for me because I mean I, I use a lot of humor in my writing, uh, and but I love that sort of nod and a wink humor. Whereas you know it's very British, isn't it? That sort of like um, <laughs> like you say, you're, you're sitting there and you're rolling your eyes, just going, "Oh yeah. man, could this guy be any more of a yeah. douche?" You know. <laughs> but her genius also is that the amount of pathos she's able to um, elicit, yeah. even from the most vile characters like Drawlight or even Mister Norrell himself, mm-hmm. you realize that Indeed. he's an incredibly yeah. lonely person. And, and you know, yeah. um, so that's brilliant. And by the way, I ha- always have to say, Mister Norell, like in the Mister Norell, to my mind. <laughs> um, but yeah, there's so much pathos at the end for Drawlight, you know, and Drawlight's fate. Um, you know, yeah, and, and the sort yeah. of the yeah. unspoken, but because they they never admitted to each other, but the unspoken reconciliation between Norrell and Strange, you know, I, I think it's it's. I I did like that because that is a very that again is very British, you know. You you, you have people you fall out with, and then you you won't you won't just say yeah oh right yeah yeah but you're forgiven things like that. You'll you'll sort of go fancy a pint, <laughs> <laughs> you know, and you'll go and have a drink with them, and then and then you'll never speak of it again, kind of thing. And you get that at the end, don't you? When they decide to go off exploring, kind of thing, and it's kind of like. So are you guys all right now? You know? <laughs> and even like Mr. Norrell is a classist hypocrite who um, um, I'm forgetting the other thing that I wanted to say about Mr. Norrell as well. But anyways, like he's he's not he's not a good character, quote unquote. Um, there's a lot wrong with uh, Mr. Norrell, but all of it still is so believable and it feels like it's a true character. And I have empathy and pity for this guy who's just living his life, um, hiding from the world um, and just doing what he feels like he needs to do to get the things done that he believes mm-hmm. need to get done. And even as much as he's a classist, he's also still an Arabiste and insecure in his position because everything comes naturally to Strange and 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 Norwell's yeah. from Yorkshire and he comes down and, and you know it's a, really a country bumpkin in some ways, right? And he doesn't understand the ways of of London and the upper class, and he has to have these so these parasites mm-hmm. like Drawlight and Lascelles attach themselves to him, you know? <laughs> yep. Yeah, and that's that's what some of my favourite bits in the entire book is when when Norrell first arrives in London and get gets sort of you know the, like you say they're parasites aren't they they sort of attach themselves to him because uh, it reminded me of, of like the first time I went down to London right because <laughs> I'm from a small northern town right and you go down there and it's all big and there's all these people rushing about and you're a bit like oh what the hell's going on here. So it's um you know, and uh, but again, like you said, that it's the vulnerability with Norrell as well, because he is a complete fish out of water, and that's what leads him to do some of the the questionable things he does because he's kind of it's almost monomania, isn't it? He's he's decided on a course, he wants to do it, he will do it, come hell or high water. And it leads him to do some incredibly bad things that lead to basically. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but he's doing that. It's, it's the classic, isn't it? Of um, the road to hell being paved with good intentions. Mm-hmm. It, it's that. And I th- it seems like all of the characters are very much being driven by their own values. And it yeah. seems like the author really understands the values of these characters. So Mr. Norrell's actions make complete sense. The gentleman with the thistle down hairs 
um, everything he does makes complete sense when you look mm. at it through the lens of what his values are. And it's just so interesting that she has such a diversity of characters with so many different kinds of values driving what their what what their actions are and to have them all be so believable is an incredible mm. feat. Yeah, definitely. It's like like say the gentleman with thistle down hair. Uh, he's a he's a great villain because again, he's not he's not like two-dimensional. There is depth. Mm-hmm. There is a there is a depth. There's a backstory there. There is a reason why he does the things he does uh, which makes it all the more uh, impactful when, like, when he goes and he like mad murderous rages, right? It's like you almost understand it, which is quite terrifying if you think about it. But but you kind of get where he's coming right. from. And when he's clearly the hero of his own story, right? Anything he, when he goes into these rages, exactly. he's been affronted, right? And uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, these these English magicians who are villains yeah. are are destroying the things he's worked so hard yeah. for, and. It's interesting to me, since you mentioned, uh, Jeff, of viewpoints, if the characters who are the ultimate heroes are the characters who are able to see outside of themselves, like Stephen Black, like Arabella, um, and to a certain extent, Lady Pole, because she understands like what her position as a woman is, but how unjust it is, and that you know this is how these, yeah. these you know, upper-class gentlemen think of her, right? And, and so she starts dashing off all those letters and, you know... Um, and that they are ultimately, and it's also a children mass and vinculus, the people who are forgotten or left by the wayside who are not credited with any of this the way that Jonathan Strange and Norrell are, but they are the ultimately the ones who prevent, you know, basically fairy genocide on England or. You know. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, so I think that that's a marvelous. Yeah, children mass also is uh, a couple of people have mentioned children mass as their secret hero of this book, yes. too, in some ways. He's, he's probably my favorite character from yeah. this book. Yeah, he's he's yeah. my close second to Vinculus. Yeah, he, he's again. I know I know guys like him. <laughs> you, 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 you know, big North, big Yorkshireman. You know, big taciturn Yorkshireman. <laughs> and it's interesting, like Childermas, because he is both uh, upholding the system, but also completely ready to tear it down at the same time, right? In, in mm. almost anarchistic kind of way, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, I guess he's yeah. kind of an idealist, isn't he? It's uh, you know, I, I like the fact that he sort of he has the courage of his convictions. Right. He gives off this very cynical yeah. face, but yeah, and he and like you think he's being a victim when LaSalle goes completely psychopathic on him, cutting his face yeah. open, but he's actually you know having his ploy and stealing back Lady Paul's finger, which is I think a brilliant scene, you know, because it's 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 like mm. that, and obviously the because the book you realize the brutality of the book at for the first two thirds is sort of joking and you 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 when you think yeah. about it you realize how how brutal some of the stuff but then that last act you realize like how brutal everything is the social structure the power structures that allow things to happen both the gentleman yeah. lasalle at his level you know murdering draw light or you know or also killing the guardian of the road you know and hanging him on the thorn tree and so you know yeah, yeah. And Mr. Norrell is always overlooking the dangers of being associated with these people so that he can get what he needs to get accomplished, accomplished. So he summons the gentleman with the thistle down hair so that he can advance um, the, um, the, the movement of the restoration of English magic. And all of that ends up biting him in the ass severely. Yep. He ends up um, um, partnering up with LaSalle and choosing LaSalle over um, Childermass multiple times. Um, all because LaSalle really helps him out socially. 
And um, Jonathan Strange is somebody who he like is reluctant at first, but ends up giving him all of this um, magical knowledge and magical training um, and ends up empowering him to become exactly who he ended up being and was doing so because he's just so incredibly lonely. And it was very exciting for him to finally have a peer and an equal that he could talk to about yeah. things. Mm. Yeah, I, lo- I love that. It was very understated, the sort of rivalry between the two to, to begin with. Uh, yeah, he's, he's like you can almost visualize it as sort of like sideways like looks when mm-hmm. strange because because obviously Norrell has dedicated his entire life to studying this and it, like right at the beginning you, you meet you go to his library I want that yeah. library <laughs> you know with, with the the, 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 the carved wood and all that it sounds mm-hmm. awesome and then along comes strange he buys a few <laughs> buys a few spells off Finculus at a market <laughs> <laughs> and and all of a sudden. Yeah. Here we yeah. go. Is this this Johnny Come Lately source? And I love that he wants he both like he's hidden all these books from all the other magicians and is deliberately taking his most valuable books and leaving them in Yorkshire at Hurfew Abbey so that Jonathan mm-hmm. Strange. But then he's also like, oh, but if he if I let him read this book, we could have a deeper conversation and come to a closer meeting of the minds. Yeah. But he still can't do it because no, but then he's my yeah. my peer rather than my you know my student. You know, <laughs> it's just yeah. it's a very funny. Um, it's so psychologically acute, I guess that's what I'm saying, at, at every level of the characters. Absolutely. Yeah, definitely. I mean, if Norrell was to, to personify one of the deadly sins, it would definitely be pride, wouldn't it? Mm. It's that that his, yeah. his, his ultimate sin is pride. And yeah. uh, it's like right at the start, you, you know, you kind of get a really good um, sort of feeling for what kind of character and how ruthless he can be with the whole sequence with the Yorkshire Society. Mm-hmm. And and the miracle, you know, the stone, the the stone gargoyles coming to life, and all that kind of business. Uh, it, it, it's just like it's really, really ruthless. <laughs> and actually, uh, and I think we mentioned something similar to this book club, but the point that um, Honey Honeyfoot and who's the other gentleman uh, didn't sign John Segundus, Segundus and Honeyfoot didn't yeah. sign, and it's it's because Segundus is so um, mild. And so not ego driven, where the other magicians yeah. are like, oh yes, so we challenge, you know, so we will exactly. sign this. And he's and it's the people who are the meek who do ultimately triumph, right? And that's yeah. you know, Segundus, you know, is able to open the magic school and and do and, and re revive the along with Childer Mass and Vinculus, the you know, the Yorkshire Society and and stuff like that. So, um, yeah. And then transitioning this to a gaming to the gaming side of the conversation here. I know that Gavin Norman, who is the um, writer behind the Dolmenwood setting, um, he has cited Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell as a major influence on his works. Um, But I also think there are lots of people out there who've read this and have been inspired by it. And I think if they would read it, if they haven't, they would find lots to be inspired by. Um, Having having revisited this this text, um, Tim, were there things that you were finding that you were just like, oh, as a game designer, as a dungeon master, as a player, these would be really fun things to to use in my gaming. Yeah, definitely. I mean, the the thing, the, one of the first ones that jumped out at me is obviously the King's Roads. I mm. love that concept, and the, the the fact that Lost Hope is almost like a purgatory. I don't. Can know you explain if, the King's Roads to the people listening who haven't read this? Uh, the King's Roads were created by the Raven King as a way of basically getting around, uh, and they they sort of go through dimensions and they're through um, reflective surfaces. 
because you, you think it's mostly mirrors, don't you? But you can actually access them through lakes and puddles, which I thought would be interesting in gaming. Um, and yeah, <laughs> they're sort of like shortcuts, aren't they? And interdimensional shortcuts, pretty much. And they're also kind of like a weird Escher painting when you go into them. And, and, and there's rumors that it can be very dangerous and that there's wild things that you can encounter there. We, we never see any of that, I don't believe. Um, but we, we are aware that there are major risks that are associated with using yeah. these roads. And Tim, to your point with the King's Roads, I like how some of them are very, like, clearly you're passing through a magic portal, like this dark arch when, um, when yeah. Arabella sees Strange at the end or some of these. But some of them are like these more gradual things. Oh, here's an opening in the hedge and people just kind of continue. And then, and so I think that's great for a game where it's not like, oh, you're suddenly in a different dimension. It's like you as maybe the game master are starting to drop hints that think that you are no longer at home. Right, you've passed through this. You're on this road, and yeah. you've gone further down this road, and you're, you know, and the, the, you know, now the stars are different, or you know, or you know, the the plant, the trees, and the plants are different, you know, um, or, or which also feels very British. It feels very um, C.S. Lewis. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Very much so. Very C.S. Lewis um, and Lewis mm-hmm. Carroll as well. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Yeah. But the 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 thing with the the King's Roads for me, because I mean, I, um, I'm a I'm a writer of cosmic horror uh, and a lot of that plays with liminal spaces and thresholds. You know, you you make a wrong turn on your way home one night and you end up down some dark alley and you're in some weird dimension and there's some tentacle monster trying to eat your face. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that, that concept for me with gaming, like you say, this thing's there, they're hinted at. I want to know what they are. And in a, in a gate in a scenario, you could explore that, couldn't you? Mm. By the way, absolutely nothing. But aside, since you mentioned cosmic horror, one of my all-time favorite, like going into an alternate dimension, cosmic horror. You wouldn't think of the Stephen King's Crouch End story. Oh, Crouch End, yeah, tremendous, brilliant. tremendous story. Yeah, yeah it, it's one of my favorites of Stephen King. Yeah. Uh, actually, I, yeah. I think that's an absolutely great story. Yeah, uh, yeah. Ramsey Campbell did one called The Tugging, which is mm-hmm. very similar. But obviously set in Liverpool, yeah. which is a very similar sort of concept. This uh, is uh, yeah. Jeff, uh, the first, the only, well, not the only. I mean, Stephen King's a, a Lovecraft fan, but it's just only sort of overtly Lovecraftian cosmic horror story. I think that we're, we're oh, seeing. cool, yeah, yeah. Um, well, there's two, isn't there? Really, there's the there's Crouch End and Jerusalem's Lot. All right, yeah, because, original yeah. Jerusalem's Lot, yeah, yeah, not the yeah, uh, was the pre Salem's Lot. Sorry, but yeah. yes, yeah. yeah, yeah. Okay, cool. Yeah. But yes, but we're talking about these liminal spaces or these thinnings between the mm-hmm. known world and the unknown world. Um, yeah. And I, yes, I think all that, the, the King's Roads. Um, I like also the, uh, <laughs> when Norrell, I uh, know oh, it's strange, some the revived the 17 dead Neapolitans and, you know, they don't, oh, yes. want, they, yes. they all don't yeah. want to go back to hell. So there's like, no, we'll just stick around even though we're these rotting corpses. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or when he animates the, um, the mermaid at the front of that French ship yeah. and they're trying to get information from her, but she just hates the English so much that she's just <laughs> like, <laughs> <laughs> I love how, like, I love how rubbish strange can be as well. That that's, I think that's one of the joys of it. it it's like, <laughs> Like nine nine times out of ten, the stuff in the Napoleonic Wars goes completely wrong. He ends up yeah. scaring his own troops. <laughs> Stupid illusion of a dragon, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and that's that's the thing that I really want to steal from this. And it's 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 a it's a tall order that I'm asking for with this. But in the patron book club, I was talking about it. But the the spells, 
mm. are so cool. Yeah. And it makes me think about how fun it would be to play a game where magic users have access to a bunch of spells, but they're all very specific. You know, it's like a spell to see what your enemy is doing right now, a spell uh-huh. to, sca- to, to scare somebody from leaving London. Like there are these very specific spells and you have to like try to kind of make this very specific spell work to your favor. But also I think a common pitfall with um, fantasy role-playing game spells is that they tend to be too meta. If it's a game where you ha- need willpower points to cast spells, suddenly you have spells where you can steal somebody's willpower points. Or if you're in a game where there's like lots of combat, a lot of your spells are driven by dealing damage or healing damage. And I, I want really interesting, flavorful, flavorful spells that you have to be really creative with how you use them. And I think the kind of magic we have presented here is a really beautiful way, a really beautiful example of that. Yeah, like a spell to make 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 somebody's trousers fall down at an inopportune moment. You know, exactly. That, you could have real fun with that, couldn't you? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm going to cast the the trousers falling down spell on you right now as you're about <laughs> to fight that ogre because that'll be hilarious. <laughs> exactly. A spell where your dinner will tell you exactly what it thinks of you. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Don't eat me, you bastard. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, to the extent that you're going to have meta currencies, like you mentioned, Jeff, uh, whether it's hit points mm-hmm. or... Like, I think you almost... For what you're asking for is almost you have to do the narrative thing in order to gain the meta currencies, rather than do the meta currencies in order to affect the narrative, you know? And so putting the cart Correct. in you know, and the horse in different order. Um, and so I think... Um, it's doable, but obviously it's a high trust situation in a role playing game like that. If you're going to do something like that, um, and that you're going to have to have people who are uh, not trying to quote unquote win. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I mean that's marvelous. Um, I think I talked about like yeah, it would be fun to have a game where you're at the level of the Lasalle, the Draw Light, the the uh, Childer Masses, and that the Stranges and the Norels are, are the high level NPCs, like the god level NPCs, and you know, you're in, the, in their wake. Um, and then obviously, the gentleman and the depiction of fairy, so it's getting away from the sort of the, the cute high fantasy version of elves and back to the terror oh, of yeah. fairy, you know. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's one of the things I love about that again is the, is the fact that it is sort of mines the classic fairy tales. You know, oh, yeah. it's very much it's, it's the original Grimm's, not the Disney version. You know, <laughs> it's you know, it's yeah, nasty, nasty stuff. Right. To again, get, these are things to be afraid of. Right. I mean, mm-hmm. the yeah. the gentleman is maybe not an elder god, but he's a great old one, right? In a way, right? <laughs> to, in terms of the scope of his power, right? <laughs> yeah. 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 And from a perspective of patrons, I think the gentleman with the thistle down hair and the Raven King are a, a excellent examples of how you can use patrons in your game too, because they're not just there to give you powers. They have things they want too. And by calling upon them, you're going to get the short-term benefit of getting the assistance you're looking for. But there's a price associated and these prices are big. And sometimes they're going to have major impacts on how your story ends up developing. And these are things you might not be happy with in the end right. to the point where you might even regret ever having yeah. called upon this thing right. to begin with. And I love how he, uh, the Raven King explicitly calls out shoulder mass on that. At the end. Did you not, you know, did you not just say just now that you were my servant, you know, not like three days ago that you were my servant, you know, <laughs> and like, yeah, shoulder mass still doesn't recognize that in the moment, you know, which is kind of fascinating. So always read the small print. Mm-hmm. 
That's the <laughs> that's the moral of the story, isn't it? Always read the small print because it is the wording, uh, and, and that that can tie back into your spellcasting and stuff, right? You know, if you, you cock the wording up, you can make a right pig's breakfast yeah. of it. Mm-hmm. And for, as a game master, I think it's a nice reminder to not shy away from having the stakes get really big yeah. and having there be really big consequences to, to, to using some of these class features. Because we see like, oh, it's allowed on my character sheet, so therefore it's probably not that big of a deal. Like, no, like if you set the tone at the table that like, hey, if you call upon these powers, bad things might happen. Yeah. You got to follow through with that. Because yeah. if you say that and then they, they summon the patron and they just get what they want, it's just a spell check. And then you move on with the adventure. Then you, then, then you haven't followed through on this, this, this really integral part of this world that you've built. Right. Yeah. Wow. I think you'd have to have the, like the, the, the core threat would have to be big enough to warrant you to need to use these powers because yeah. if, if you take if you warn people you know there, there will be consequences for using this kind of stuff you've got to give them a reason to think it, it might be necessary you know mm-hmm. well, <laughs> like, well, clearly that's a decision Norrell made and then he immediately regretted right at the beginning yeah right? <laughs> exactly yeah but it also accomplished for him exactly what he wanted it, it to accomplish Indeed. so yeah. the summoning of both the gentleman with the thistle down hair and the raven king were, were were both things that were done for reasons that in the story make a lot of sense mm-hmm. and oof the the the, the consequences exactly. of both of those summonings are massive mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah yeah, and, and he saw it, and he ran away from it, just like the way that a Lovecraftian protagonist at the very end is like, "Oh no, no, no!" Throws in that book. Indeed. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. He failed his son role. Yeah, he <laughs> basically, yeah, mm. one step away from fainting, and yep. that's the classic Lovecraftian thing, isn't it? Mm. You know. <laughs> and although this isn't sword and sorcery, in sword and sorcery, we see a lot of wizards who are summoning demons yep. to get additional powers, and I also think this is a great example of what it could look like for how you could role play out demon summoning for 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 special powers mm-hmm. you can just oh, reskin yeah. the gentleman with the thistle down hair as a demon and it still works just as well yeah definitely yeah. he's a yeah. demon he's he's Arioch, he's nyarlathotep you know yes <laughs> yeah. he's a tree he's a tree he almost tricks the god isn't he, he yeah. loki or anything mm-hmm. like that yeah. you know yep yep You've got the temptation factor of a Lucifer as well, haven't you? So, mm-hmm. you know. And then one bit of that that I love that you said, Hoy, in the Patron Book Club too, is that you can have all of those things, but also potentially in the guise of this person is your familiar. Right. This person is your servant, yeah. quote unquote. Right. But yeah. like, nope. <laughs> <laughs> right. Oh, could you imagine having it? <laughs> your familiar. Right. It'd be terrifying, wouldn't it? Right. As, you know, Call Tom Blue and all of them are presumably, you know, of course, the gentleman says they're nothing, you know, there's little minor sprites, mm. but he could you don't know the gentleman could be lying he could be jealous of call tom blue or the other you know the exactly. other fairies um and of course steven is the richest person in the world because the gentleman keeps applying him with gifts but no he can never show anybody he'll never know because they're all in this yeah, you know? yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, lost hope i think would be an interesting thing to use from a sort of gaming perspective because mm-hmm. you could use it as a sort of a purgatory, couldn't you? Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know how you would work it in mechanically. I just think the idea would be quite interesting. You know, instead of, you know, you make, you cock something up and you end up stuck in this sort of eternal dance hall, right? you know, performing. You could, you could certainly do it in, uh, as you do, literally cock them, or you could have it as, as since you mentioned, a purgatory. If your PCs are, are killed, and they're in this mm, mental state, yeah. they might be able to return to the living world if they do the right things, you know, in, yeah. in Lost Hope. 
um the fairy the fairy uh woman at the wall she was fascinating too the one that i think uh, it's a jonathan stranger interacts with or steven interacts with um at the at the ball and the one with the, the red cloak scene. and yeah, i mean there's so many scenes it's, it's um i can't i can't cite what page it is but it, it, he meets her at the at the ball at lost hope um i think it's steven yeah steven right i think it's steven yeah i could be wrong but i think i think i think i know the scene you're talking about yeah. but um yeah um and um uh brandon was talking about how he loves how things that are quote-unquote uh, useless skills in major D&D like performance skills you can get like dance in GURPS or D&D or you be a bard but these are story driven and that you're you're interacting there's an, again another scene in the ball where I think uh, they keep on trying to talk to each other and then getting separated because of the nature of the yes. dance and, and it's yep. you know, Steven and Arabella and a couple of others and they're trying to you know and Jonathan and they're trying to talk to each other and they get parted because of the dance um how do we, you know being able to play that stuff out i think it's marvelous especially i think it would be terrific in like a larp type game where you're trying to do you know. yeah definitely a, a larp in that would be great fun wouldn't it <laughs> all in costume regency costume that'd be great fun <laughs> or finding interesting ways of making your charisma stat um more helpful mm-hmm. um you know i i think if you want to summon this demon king and and, and try to create a a pact with it for magical gain, but now it insists that you impress it at the, at a dance at its castle. Yeah. You know, now you have a whole scene where you're now having to do that. And it's all about etiquette and performance. And Oh, nice. That's really clever. You could get, you could really expand on that and even have like a a dinner, dinner scene, a dinner sequence where you've got to use the right knives and forks for the right (laughs) courses. All that kind of really go for that class kind of stuff. Yeah. Well, that's the, uh, the genius of this book, right? The PC who was playing Norel didn't realize that charisma was the most important stat in this game. <laughs> and everybody else kind of, you know, maxed out their charisma. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. yeah I did that, that's one thing that always strikes me is like, yeah, the, the one who's the most sort of self-important is the, the one who's got the least charisma out of everybody in the book. <laughs> So I think we can go ahead and start wrapping up there. So, um, Tim, what are your, do you have any final thoughts about Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell? Or is there anything you wanted to chat about that we didn't get a chance to, to discuss? Uh, yeah, just very briefly, like some of the, again, back to the footnotes, just some of the random bits of flavor uh, that I, I spotted was the thing about Caesar. Yeah. Uh, and that that, yes. that that Caesar became this great leader because he'd done a deal. <laughs> he, he, <laughs> he was a judge on a case in in fairy, wasn't he, or something like this? So that his reward was that he was going to be this great and powerful leader. <laughs> it's, it's just incredibly inventive, and yeah. Uh, yeah. Apparently, she is working on another one, but um, yeah, when, whether it, how long it'll take, nobody knows, but. I'd be really interested to see where she went with it because the, the whole potential now is that they've got all these different dimensions and it's almost like a multiverse kind of thing mm. you could really play with, couldn't they? And yeah. uh, I, I think that just uh, so much like scope for storytelling there. Mm-hmm. I think she also had mentioned that she would be interested because this story was very much told through the the view of the upper class that she would be interested in getting to the more ground level and looking at through the eyes of like the Vinculuses mm. and the children masses and the, you know, or the, you know, or from the point of view of Arabella and the women who are also, you know, 
theoretically sidelined, although they, you, we find out that they're so important to the story at the end, you know? Oh yeah. And so what, another thing I would love to see, like we, we were, t- we touched on earlier about uh, the gentleman with thistle down hair and how he's the, the hero of his own narrative. I would love mm-hmm. to see the book flipped and told from his perspective ah. <laughs> or even just a short story, just from his perspective where you you know, He's like, oh, these these asshole magicians, you know. <laughs> yeah, who do they think they are? They're peeing on my lawn, you know. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. How dare they? <laughs> and Hoy, do you have any final thoughts? Uh, I'm so happy to revisit this book after, I guess, seven, eight years, and I think it's a book that will reward subsequent rereadings at you know, whatever you, is the appropriate interval for your life. Cause I think you'll find something new every time. Like, you know, again, the first time I read it, I read it for narrative and maybe the wit and the dialogue, but this time I was much more aware of like the class issues, the, the gender issues yeah. that I was just talking about in there um, without taking away anything from the narrative and the humor and all that was still there. And the actual horror of the last act also, mm. um, you know, was much more pre- prevalent in my mind in this reading than it was the first time. So I think it's a very rewarding book. Um, I think I, you mentioned Jeff that, we hope for more from her, but she's already just like three for three in her body of work. So I'm just glad that it all exists. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah, yeah definitely. Yeah. yeah. So such a, in, such an incredibly rewarding book. I really enjoyed reading it the first time. I really enjoyed uh, coming back to it again this time. And I think um, if I'm going to walk away from this with anything that I'm hoping will affect how I run games and play games in the future is to really try to have characters' values be a really integral part about what's driving them forward as a player, but also as a GM with NPCs. Having a clear sense about not, not like not only what these characters want, but like why they want it, why mm. they feel like they're allowed, why, why they feel like they are entitled to this thing. Um, I think that information can really, really help you give something to hang your hat on mm-hmm. with these characters. Mm-hmm. And she does that so beautifully. Yeah, even with the characters are not immediately obvious, like Childermas, you know, and then you you are slowly revealed over the course of time that he's been sort of morally consistent, you know. <laughs> In a way. Yeah, 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 yeah. What does this character want, and why do they feel entitled to this thing? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so, Tim, where can our audience go about finding your works of fiction and your podcasts and all of that stuff? Uh, an easy place to start is probably my website, which is timmendysauthor.wordpress.com. Uh, yeah. Other than that, obviously I've got the old Amazon author page. It was like my, I've got, I've got like seven novellas on there and I've been in like over a hundred anthologies and a couple of short story collections I've got out as well. So that's probably an easy place. The podcasts, uh, if you, it's Buzzsprout and there's Patreon as well for the Innsmouth Book Club podcast and Strange Shadows. They're quite, they're, they're both linked and you can also join us as a patron to help us spread our tentacles if you so wish. <laughs> and uh, and Mr. G- Mr. Goad has been a guest uh, a number of times. <laughs> and uh, It's we, true. And, uh, and Hoy, you, you've been on it as well, but that was before I was a part Just of one sign in Smith Book Club, but I would definitely have to get my, my decks cleared to come back at any time you want me. So Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And your, your co-host, Rob Poyton, will be yep. appearing on our next episode on Gustav Flambert's Salambo. Oh, nice. Nice. So that'll be fun. Yeah, yeah. definitely. 
So Hoy, where can folks find us? Right. So um, if you want to drop us a note, uh, email is always good. So it's appendixnbookclub at gmail.com. Uh, Twitter still somehow hasn't burned down to the ground. Uh, <laughs> so, <laughs> Not quite. So, I, 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 I'm sorry, I don't know what Twitter is. Yeah. Do you mean X? X, yeah, X yeah, I don't know what to call that anymore. <laughs> right. It's still Twitter. Um, uh, appendix, uh, yeah. at appendix underscore N. We can be found there for a while. We're not on like Blue Sky or anything like that yet, so we'll see to see what happens there. Um, but so Gmail, if you want to drop us a note directly, and if you want to see sort of what's coming up, that's uh, Twitter is still the best place to look for us. Uh, we also have a Patreon, Jeff. How about that? Yeah. And before I get into the spiel about the Patreon, I just want to let the audience know that I did make an announcement to our Patreon a few weeks ago, uh, letting everybody know that at the end of the year, I will be leaving the show. I've got uh, three more episodes after this one. I will be present for Gustav Flambert's Salambo, Michael Moorcock's The Mad God's Amulet, and Walter M. Miller Jr.'s A Canticle for Leibowitz. But after that, I'm done. It's been six and a half years of doing this project, and I've loved it so much. But I'm also ready to start focusing my attentions elsewhere and working on other projects. So exactly what that's going to mean for the future of the show is still TBD. Um, We're figuring that stuff out as we go. But I did want to go ahead and let the audience know on on an actual episode that this was going on as well. But um, going back to the Patreon for a moment, I would like to let um, folks know that people who join our Patreon are able to uh, participate in our pre-show discussions. And this week, uh, we were joined by Robert Coleman, Brandon Cruz, Jason White, and Adam Styers. Thank you for joining us today. That was a lot of fun. And I would also like to give a shout out to our newest patron, uh, Cars. And I'd like to uh, pull out a few names from the hat as well. So thank you to Darren Dumez, Jeremy Harper, Damo Saklas, Robert Poyton, Richard Reed, Sean P. Kelly, Rose City Politics, Eric Hicks, Dan Alexander, and Carsa Torvold. We've really appreciated and continue to appreciate your patronage. So thank you so much. Our next episode will be Gustav Flambert Salambo. And uh, Tim, it has been awesome having you on the show. Thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me, chaps. It's been a, been a blast. Tim, it's been an honor, and I really hope to get a chance to talk to you soon in some other uh, some other context. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Lo- lovely to meet you. All right. All right, everybody. See you in the stacks. Read on. The library is closed. <laughs>